Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Mic, Conversations of Hope. I'm your host, Mike Stone. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, today we are actually going to be talking about a subject that is very sensitive, very personal, and also very heartbreaking. Our guest behind the mic today is Sue Bowles. Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. This is great. So Sue and I actually met up kind of through email as as, uh, you reached out to me and and started to share a little bit of your story. And I was very interested because this is something, this is a topic that I wanted to touch on, but one that I am just not at all familiar with. I think that it's important that we discuss it because I think there's a lot of people that deal with this, either have recently dealt with it or have dealt with it in their past. And and like you, have carried that with them for a long time. So Sue, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and then we want to just kind of dive into your story. Sure. Well, like you said, my name is Sue. I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio, and I went to college at Defiance College up in Northwest Ohio, did my graduate work in Minnesota, worked in Indiana for a year. I've been back in Ohio ever since. And um, it's just been the last four or five years where, and and I'm not going to say forgive me if I get emotional, but just understand if I get emotional. Absolutely. um, At times it, it, at times I have a reaction just because it's my story. Yeah. Um, but it's only been the last four or five years where I've really done the hard work of healing to come to the place where I can go from where I was, you know, five, six years ago of calling myself the holy exception, where everything in the Bible was good for everybody else but me. But you, yeah. I was too far gone. I screwed up too bad. There was no way God could ever love me. And I was questioning if I was even lovable to other humans. Sure. So to go from that to now sitting behind the mic or standing on a stage sharing my story, it's only been the last four or five years. So it's been, it's been pretty, uh, pretty crazy. It's been very intense. Um, and I wouldn't trade the process for anything now that I'm on the other side. Yeah. And, and it, it, took, it took a lot to get to the other side. So yeah. I don't want whatever we talk about today, I will never downplay the tenacity it takes to fight through for healing and not quit on yourself and not let others quit on you. Could you start sharing that story? I don't want to give your book away, but I think, <laughs> I think that once we talk to you, we're going to know the beginning and the end. But let me, let me just tell you, though, you will be blessed if you pick up Sue's book and read it because you talk about so much that we're not going to be able to talk about in right. here today. But such a great story. Back when I was in first grade, and, and, and let me, before I say anything, um, let me follow up on what you said. You know, Mike is right. Well, we're going to talk about a sensitive. And, and I want to say, if you've experienced this or have history of it in your family, if you find anything triggering in what we're sharing, feel free to turn off the show, engage in some self-care, balance yourself out, and do what you need to do for you. Hmm. And when you're ready... If you feel like you're ready, come back and listen to the rest of it. But don't compromise yourself just to listen to me. You are the important one here. And your self-care is the most important. So that's good. Having said that, okay, that's, that's my caveat at any time because yeah. I can still get triggered at times. Oh, sure. Uh, after school one day, seventh, first, first grade, seven years old, walking home from school. It was very normal in that day and age. You know, kids walked to school. We were three-quarters of a mile from home. And um, Bobby Nolan came up to me and um, 
lack of a better word, enticed me into the woods and, and said, hey, there's something I want to show you. And I followed. Curiosity's normal for mm-hmm. a seven-year-old. There was no indication anything was going to happen. Yeah. And before I knew it, he was raping me. Mm. Um, I was... And again, I'll be a little specific, but again, I don't want to be too specific, okay? But I was held against my will. Yeah. Um, and I was told to be quiet when people were walking by. And when uh, about 45 minutes later, I heard my mom calling for me. And, and now from an adult mindset, I can only imagine the fear going through her head. Her seven-year-old daughter is 45 minutes late from school with no reason whatsoever. So she's thinking the worst. And she's coming to the school grounds calling for me. By then, the school grounds are cleared out. We're in the woods on, you know, next to the sidewalks. I was like, Bobby, that's my mom. I got to go. That, that was my excuse. At that point, I'm like, get me the heck out of here. So I headed out. He headed the opposite direction and said, don't tell anybody. And I never realized the power that I gave those words. Mm, yeah. So um, I didn't know what had happened. It's not something that was talked about in the 70s, in yeah. the early 70s. It's something was, certainly wasn't something that was talked about with a seven-year-old. And it wasn't expected. So I didn't have the words. I didn't even really know what happened. I kind of sensed something wrong happened, but I didn't know what. Yeah. And and my mom was responding in a way that every parent would. And I don't blame her for that at all. I'm her daughter. She loved me. She was scared. Yeah. So all she knew was her daughter was coming out of the woods late, and it looked like I was just playing. And and again, I've had to work through a lot of this from blaming myself. And we can get into that. That is such, that's a normal thing. And yeah. that is, that's a burden to get past. Yeah. So anyway, so go from that and um, that whole experience to, you know, like I said, not knowing what happened, not having the words. And because of the fear and the love shown through fear, um, you know, there was an opportunity to, no one was thinking to ask what happened it did anything happen and i sure as heck didn't know what to say yeah so it unfortunately became my 15 year old secret and i didn't tell anybody till my dean of students my senior year of college mm. thank god for ed highland um ed is a very special person i have uh, had a chance to see him he knows about the book he has a copy of it um ed was was just precious to me in college became my confidant and just in, in one conversation my senior year, um, it just kind of came out. And, and I, I hadn't planned it. I didn't even know it was wanting to come out. Yeah. But it came out. And that, that, cracked, that cracked the iceberg. Yeah, thank goodness for that. Because you'd already right. been through 15 years of this. Yeah. I read stories and I know what people who have gone through that say. But I, I don't have any reference point for that to carry something like that with you and like you said at that age you really didn't even know what was going on you didn't understand it mom thought you were playing in the woods never right. really questioned it correct right, right. so yeah you i had can't to carry blame this. her for her reaction no not at all i don't blame her for yeah. years i did when i didn't understand when i had all the anger that i was holding within yeah but i my mom loved me and came looking for me yeah that's right well, nothing wrong with that at all yep like I said, I told Ed, and I, I said, you can only give away the book. Um, yeah. But you know, to tell the story, I told Ed, 
he went with me the following week at my request to my counselor there in town um, and showed the story again. And, um, you know, I was a senior in college. I only had a few weeks left, so there really wasn't anything we could get done. Um, when I went to graduate school, that's where things, that's where, where the ice started melting a little bit. Ed cracked the ice block, and it started to melt in grad school. There was uh, just one night, I was down at the front desk of the residence hall. It had five different wings. I was a supervisor of one of the wings as a graduate assistant. Went down there. My supervisor was down there in her office. Just stopped down to talk to her. And there, she could tell something was going on. And again, when you're struggling with these things, you, you can't really put in words what's going on. You can tell something's stirring in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. And other people might be able to see it if they're attentive to it. But... It's not like I can tell you, well, I'm processing this rape. You know, I can, can't tell you that because I can't find words for it. Yeah. So she was sensitive and noticed something was going on and asked me about it. And I told her what I had told Ed just a few months prior. And um, Amy was very, very precious in her response, very helpful. Um, you know, asked, asked a few questions, made sure I was okay. And then suggested you know that i, that I you know, talked to a counselor over the counseling center and she took the lead asked me if she could make the appointment and she made that appointment and she walked with me the next days to try and break the break the ice with the counselor yeah and then for the next two years while i was in grad school i was starting to work it through with sandy um you know we got some taken care of but we had a long way to go and when i graduated sandy recommended that i continue with somebody um and I really didn't continue with anybody about the rape until, honestly, 2008. And that's where, that's where the story really really starts getting exciting, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. I mean, I was with other counselors, but it just, it just wasn't, I, I wasn't at that point. Um, and and it, there was other stuff going on in my life that I had to deal with. My parents divorced, for example. Yeah. So I wasn't able to deal with the past because I had too much going on in the present. So this has been 15 years before you even breathed the word of it. How did that, how did that play out in your life? It had to affect you, even though as a, as a first grader, seven-year-old, you didn't really understand what happened, but you knew something wasn't mm-hmm. right. right. So, and clearly after 15 years, this had bottled up inside of you. And how was that presenting itself in your life as you, from that moment sure. through that 15 years? When, as it was showing itself, I didn't tag it as being related to right. everything. And actually, some of these realizations came through as I was writing the book. When mm. I would go back through and reread the book, I was, it started glaring at me at how much I was searching for significance and to be seen. It yeah. was something I, I knew in my heart, but I never put on paper, never said to anybody. That's right. So some of it was just because I felt insignificant. I needed to be seen. So I was involved in every activity under the sun because if I was involved, then I was seen. And I felt I had value when people saw me because then I, they knew I existed. Um, you know, there was other sexual assault or sexual abuse, if you want to call it that, from, from high school guys. You know, when I'm on, da- on dating, you know, mm-hmm. things happen that need to happen. Uh, there was sexual abuse from a neighborhood kid. Um, so it wasn't just once. And, 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 I, and I, need to, I should go back and say, Bobby actually raped me twice. You know, it wasn't just once. Wow. Um, in, in, the, in the course of that 45 minutes in the woods. Um, so, you know, so I didn't realize, I knew that I, I called myself a messed up kid. I knew I was hurting, but I didn't know what I was hurting from. Right. And, and then as, 
as I got into college and then afterwards is when I started understanding more. You know, I think we're all, there, there comes a point at that age, especially, you know, we're around middle school age where we're all really kind of going, I think I'm just really messed up. I don't <laughs> feel like I fit in. What's my identity? Who am yeah, I? Exactly. Do I even have worth? I mean, we all struggle with that. It's kind of an adolescent thing, but you had more going on behind the scenes than that. So I can't imagine through this, though, you talk about in your book, you struggled with uh, at, at what point did you start with the eating disorder? The eating disorder started, it started in high school, but I didn't realize it was starting in high school. It really ramped up in college. And what happened was, um, it, and the way I describe it is, when you're on a path, if, you're, if your path is crooked from the start, yeah. the longer you're on that path, the further away from the right. true path you get. Yeah. So by the time, you know, if, I, if my path started getting crooked at seven, by the time I'm mm. 18 and 20, I'm really far off path here. Wow. So I say that to say my brain was not processing things because by then I've got paranoia going on in my mind in terms of, you know, everybody's thinking, what's everybody thinking about me? Yeah. I think that, that, that's a common occurrence we have of is what's everybody going to think, especially middle school, high school, college. You know, what's my image? I have an image to uphold. Yeah. And, but for me, with everything else I had going on, it ramped it up. It took it from being a normal experience that everybody has right. to everybody's looking at me. Everybody, everybody knows. Yeah. And where it started was I went to Defiance. We had one cafeteria and one window for meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I would go up and if I was hungry, where my brain started telling me, and what I, what I say is what Ed, my eating disorder, started telling me. Mm -hmm. is that if I went up for, for more food, because I was hungry, everybody would know I was hungry. And I didn't want everybody looking at me. So I just learned to shut off my hunger. I dumped my tray and I got out of Dodge. And what, you know, where, where, where it kind of more, it, it just continued there. It, it started there. But then it continued as I got older. And it's what I, became, what I would call anorexic tendencies, but I never called it anorexia or any other eating disorder. I never even called it an eating disorder. It was just odd eating behavior. Sure, yeah. I was in denial big time. Um, my eating disorder actually is what they call um, OSFED, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. So it, I don't fit all the technical classifications for anorexia or bulimia or overeating or, bin, or binge disorder or anything like that. So I have one of the lesser knowns but actually has a very high percentage of, hmm. of, of, of people with it as well. One of the big misnomers out there is that there's only two or three types of eating disorders, and that right. is not the case. Yeah. So OSFED is just one of the lesser knowns. Got it. It's not one of the, three, of the big three, yeah. but it is still an eating disorder that deserves just as much attention and has just as much danger as any other eating disorder. Sure. And sometimes it's actually more dangerous because you don't look quote unquote like you have an eating disorder whatever that means yeah there there is no look of an eating disorder yeah nobody knew yeah nobody knew and this really was just a symptom of stuff going on under the surface it, 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 it was it was an, an, an outflow of it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah an eating disorder is is basically it's not about vanity 
and I'm gonna get on a soapbox here for a minute. Eating disorders are not about vanity. They are not about losing weight, and they are not about not about trying to look good. Absolutely, that, yeah. They are about not dealing with emotions the right way, and that disconnect showing itself through your relationship with food. Yeah. For me, it became if I was hungry, or let me phrase it this way: if I didn't, if I told myself I wasn't hungry, I didn't have to feel. And if I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to think. And if I didn't have to think, I didn't have to deal with my stuff. So that's mm. how it all came out was because it was one more distraction. So I didn't have to deal with what was going on underneath. But you didn't know that on your own. No. That was through your counseling and the, and the, and the assistance that you got through, yeah, the, through yeah. this walk. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one thing that I would like to point out, even as we talk through this whole thing, is if, if you're struggling with anything any type of trauma, whether it's sexual abuse or anything like that in the past or any other type of trauma, it's going to manifest itself yes. in some way, but you have to talk about it. You have to get it out there and you have to find somebody that knows how to help you because you're not alone. No, you're not. You don't listen to the lie. Yeah. For me, one of the biggest things in my eating disorder recovery was when I started realizing that I am not my eating disorder. And yeah. when I gave my eating disorder a name, yeah. I went through a whole process where my brain was very loud when I had to retrain myself to eat. And that may sound really weird to people, but if you have convinced yourself that you don't want to eat, it is effort to make yourself eat yeah. and to eat right. I would snack. I, I would grab a bag of chips or some cookies or you know something like that. And I would snack because it would curb the hunger. So I wasn't hungry. Yeah. All because I didn't want to feel, think and feel and have to deal with my stuff. Mm. Wow. You say in your book, uh, this is a quote that says, I'm alone. No one understands. No one gets it. Thus starts the downward spiral of isolation, which is exactly what the enemy wants. Um, John 10.10 talks about the enemy as one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Looking back as I read through your book, with that in mind, that's exactly what was happening. You mentioned early on in this conversation that Bobby said, don't tell anyone. And you said how that impacted you. And that made such a huge ripple effect through at least 15 years of, I can't tell anybody. And really what that was, I believe, was the enemy's way of getting in and trying to ruin or, John 10.10, 10, destroy your life. Exactly. Exactly. I believe, Sue, that, that I believe this so strongly, and this is part of the reason I'm doing this podcast, is everybody who has breath, God has a purpose for them. Yes. And the enemy wants to destroy that purpose because yep. if he can destroy you, he can destroy me. Those are two voices that are not going to be heard. Exactly. Those are two lives that are not going to affect others in a positive exactly. way. You had your eating disorder was just really one symptom of many that you experienced. Yeah. yeah. Me, mom and dad were divorcing. Um, mm. So after 34 years of marriage, my, my dad was an alcoholic, was being the operative word because I am so dad blasted proud that my dad is 29 years sober. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so proud of him. Wow. Um, that's a my, lot. My brother is seven years sober now. Wow. Um, so, you know, so even though we went through the ringer and back, yeah, things are restored. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's, that's, that's part of the fun of my story is that 
there is hope, and, and I've seen that all around. I mean, you know, if you were in the studio now, you'd see this huge smile on my face. Yeah. Um, yeah and so, you know, mom and dad were divorcing. Um, we did an intervention on dad for his alcoholism. Okay. And that was gut wrenching. If if anyone's not familiar with an intervention, you basically set them up. Um, you, you set them up so they don't know what's coming. They you set up a secret meeting that everyone else knows about except the person, and then that person is brought in by whoever is helping organize it. And they sit down, and you tell them how their addiction in whatever form it takes is affecting you. And, and the hardest part is basically giving an ultimatum that you have to be ready to live with. And you're basically saying, if you don't get help today, this is what I will do. And for me, I had to tell my dad that I would not come down and visit him anymore. Mm. And that was hard. Yeah. Now, obviously, we know the end of that story. My dad is sober. Um, I've got a great relationship with him. Uh, my dad is my biggest cheerleader. And, um, you know, so we had that going on. And again, because of everything else going on, because I didn't know how to deal with my emotions, because I didn't know how to express them or even identify what I was feeling, I was imploding at this time. Sure. I wasn't eating. I was down to my lowest weight, which I will not share because I don't want to trigger people. Mm. Um, I was drinking and I, and it was to the point I had friends that said, we made sure we had food here whenever you were here because you were not looking good. Mm. Um, so, you know, we had all that going on. I was suicidal. Yeah. I was suicidal. Now during this time this is when I was working at Ohio Westland and, um, I was, uh, involved with Canacuck Christian Sports Camp. And I'm familiar, yes. Yes, Canacuck, yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, is the world's largest Christian sports camp. It's out in Branson and Lampy, Missouri, and everywhere else right now. Um, Joe White runs it, and um, I had uh, been riding Joe for two years before I started working at the camp. Mm. So I was working out there in the summertime, and this between... Over Christmas night, New Year's 99 to 91, they did a, a ski discipleship trip out in Colorado. And um, I reconnected with a friend. Um, There's a gentleman named Billy Sprague, who's a Christian musician. Yeah. Billy was uh, involved at camp. We became very dear friends. We had lost contact after his fiance was killed. Uh, his fiance, Kit Burroughs, was on the way to surprise him at, at a concert. Hmm. And she was killed as long as it took this. Poke your head out from the lane to see if you could pass a truck. That's how long it took for her to get killed. Wow. So um, he found out right before he went on stage mm. at that show, and he went neck deep in grief. So we've, we lost touch. We reconnected right before this trip, and um, I had asked to talk to him. And that last day of the trip, we were talking up on, up on the, the ski lodge, and um, I said, I need to learn something you've gone through. How do you go on living when all you want to do is die. And he looked at me and asked what was going on, and we talked. And um, where, kind of where, where I'm going with all this is that through that conversation is where the next iceberg started to melt because I was, I was not doing well at all. And Billy's conversation, um, he shared some stories, and one of the things I share when I speak is, is this part of the story. And he had gone to the point in the airports where he was watching his feet and thinking, one step closer, one step closer. I've made it this far. I can make it one more step. That's how bad things were for Billy. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he's, he, the last words he said to me when we were talking, he's like, that's all I know to tell you, Sue, step by step. Yeah. And that is where so much of what I do now has come from. The space between and step by step 
have been married together with some teachings from my church and then remembering this from Billy, where my webs- one of my websites is mystepahead.com. Mm-hmm. And, and my purpose is basically to help people take their next step. That's what my life is about now. So when we were going down the ski slopes, Billy had me watching my shoes. And my first thought is, God, it is a long journey and I am not going to make it. And here I sit now in the year 2020 still going. Yeah. Um, so Sometimes that's all you can do is take a next step. Exactly. And I think exactly. sometimes we look around and everybody around us seems to be doing great. Everybody's mm-hmm. got a smile on their face. Nobody's struggling. Mm-hmm. And then you look at your own life and you think, I've got so far to go, I'll never be able to make it. And somebody's telling you to take it one step at a time. Right. Wow. Exactly. And, um, you know, where, where all that led you know, is, is, is where, where the story gets more hopeful and more exciting. Um, 2008, it, it, again, it starts with some sadness, but it, 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 really, it really comes around. Um, my pastor's wife died in 2008 from stage four breast cancer. She lived with it a little over five years. Actually, I'm sorry, she died in 2005. At this time, I was out of counseling. Everything seemed to be going fine. I was doing well. And then about three years after Mallory passed, I noticed my eating disorder uh, caution signs, my red flags starting mm-hmm. to go up. Yeah. And so I reached out to my pastor. And um, you know, he suggested I get back to my old counselor. When I contacted her, she's like, I'm not skilled in eating disorders. So I got a hold of my pastor again. And he remembered someone that he had experienced with, work with. When his wife died, he had, they had seven children. Two of, the, two of the girls developed severe eating disorders. So through that experience, Chuck gave me the name of this counselor. And her name is Amanda Washell. She is with Grace Recovery Counseling out of South Carolina. Um, and we actually, she, she was here in Ohio, and she moved to South Carolina in 2015. Thankfully, with advances in, in standards and ethics and, and the Internet, we were able to continue. Yeah. Um, so... That, that's kind of where, where the, the, the next part of the, of the, of the story led. Um, we have, uh, we've gone through a lot, a lot. And um, it was in working with Amanda that I finally started owning my story. And um, I just talked to her this past week again. I'm still seeing her about once every two or three weeks just to keep a check-in. Yeah. Um, and and I, I credit those 11 and 12 years with Amanda for helping me get where I am now. That and walking stick retreats, they, they go hand in hand. Yeah. There's help out there. Another uh, quote that I, that I highlighted in your book is being free from the shackles of fear, anxiety, depression, acceptance, and negativity doesn't mean those things aren't still active. They're still there. That will not change. It's a part of the human condition. Anyone who says that they do not struggle with any of those things is caught up in living a masked, disingenuous life trying to portray something that isn't there. For me, um, the whole thing about masks came about through the walking stick retreat. Hmm. And I'm sure we'll get get to that. Um, But uh, I just want to make sure we come back to that because that, that line, those lines there came from my experience with that retreat system. I have some statistics. Um, I, I try to do a little research before mm-hmm. I do each podcast. And I, again, not really understanding any of this personally. Uh, once I started, once I read through your book and once I started researching this, I started to realize the magnitude of, 
of what you went through, not just being an isolated thing, but it says, uh, I'm getting these statistics off of uh, a site called Rain R A I N N, and I'll make these all these uh, notes and uh, even URLs that you mentioned. Uh, we'll make those available in the podcast notes. But uh, Rain stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They say in in 2016 alone, Child Protective Services agencies substantiated or found strong evidence to indicate that 57,329 children were victims of sexual abuse. That comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mm -hmm. Another statistic, one in nine girls and one in 53 boys under the age of 18 experienced sexual abuse or assault at the hands of an adult. Uh, Females aged 16 to 19 are four times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. One other statistic from from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center just was astounding, and it's rape is the most underreported crime. 63% of sexual assaults are not reported to to police. Um, Again, a little different in your situation because you were young, but... Mm -hmm. But you carried that with you for so many years. And so now you're seeing this come out in um, rage and and alcohol, in uh, eating disorders. Your your soul was just kind of a mess. And it started Mm -hmm. from one incident that happened when you were seven. The power of silence. Absolutely. Yes. It's the shackles of silence. Yeah. Amanda was the one that... That kind of pulled everything together yeah, yeah. and solidified, yeah, and yeah. you started sealing, uh, feeling yeah, that healing yeah. taking yeah, place. The, the, the other other counselors I was seeing were helping me deal with present day stuff, helping me deal right. with my mom and dad's divorce, helping me deal with the intervention and the alcoholism, right. and all those things. But in terms of, you know, and then since I had that break, you know, when I finally got with Amanda, and, and bless her heart, she's just I can't sing her praises enough. She's just. she's just phenomenal shout out to amanda yeah big time big time um and about four sessions in i asked her i said you what do you think it is what's what's making the eating disorder come back and she said i think it's just a bunch of unresolved issues Mm -hmm. because she couldn't pinpoint one thing and we spent a lot of time we had to deal with the present there was still a lot of present day stuff i had boundary issues like you would not believe i was letting everybody walk over me yeah. I didn't, you know, I wasn't standing up for myself or anything. So we had so many issues to deal with in the present that finally, as those started coming under control, then we could kind of start going back to yeah. the past. Yeah. And, and, and she was very wise in that. She didn't force anything. Hmm. Um, and, and if anything, I kind of did. I, I, I would not let, even when I wanted to quit, there were times, there's probably been at least two or three times, uh, maybe more, where I've talked about, I'm not coming back, I'm quitting. You know, she was on maternity sure. leave. We were doing a phone session. And I said, I, I don't know, man, I think I'm just, I, just, I just don't see this happening. Yeah. And then she asked me to commit to one more session with her. And I said, and by the time the phone call's over, I'm like, you and I know what's going to happen, Amanda. I said, it's going to be more than one. I'm going to come back. I'm not leaving. <laughs> you know I'm not going to go through this again. If we're going to do it, we're doing it all the way. So, I mean, that's just the kind of relationship we've had. So. Yeah, yeah. How awesome, though, that you were connected to her. And yeah. um, there, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of good counselors out there. I think really the key is just finding the one right. that fits the situation. Right. Sometimes, you know, you, you were talking about counseling for the, for the, uh, 
the alcoholism, the, all those things, mm-hmm. which like you said, were present day, yeah. but really you needed, and she, she found it, the unresolved stuff yeah. uh, from your past that you had to deal with. So I think it's important to realize that one thing could just be a symptom of yep. bigger things. And I think that's why it's wise to get uh, not only good counseling, but Christ-centered counseling, I think is yes. really important because again, we talk about the body, the mind, and the spirit. And that's and, what I love about Amanda is she is a Christian counselor. And that's yeah. one thing I wanted because I had had too much of the world. I needed someone that was going to you know, help just plant seeds of truth. Yeah. And, and, and then, then water them yeah. and, and, and pull up the weeds with me and water them some more. And it understood the bigger picture of things. Yeah, because if you're, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, in the sense of sexual abuse, if you're dealing just with the body part of that, mm-hmm. that's going to heal. Right. You know, most times that's going to heal. Uh, and then, you, you know, most counselors are going to deal with the mental or the emotional mm-hmm. part of that mm-hmm. because that's that's the part that seems to be causing the problems. Mm-hmm. But if they don't go to that spiritual level, mm-hmm. because like we said, John 10, 10, you know, the enemy's out to steal, kill, mm-hmm. and destroy. And you've got to deal with that or it's not being resolved. So we're going to wrap up this episode next week as Sue starts out by sharing where Jesus was in all of this, this tragic, um, traumatic experience that she had when she was seven. She's found some healing. She continues to heal. And we're going to invite her back next week to share the conclusion of her story and let us know where she's at and also help to inspire you if you have dealt with any of this type of trauma that she can share with you some of the resources that she's used to uh, find healing and to find the freedom that she needs in Jesus. So join us next time as we wrap up this episode with Sue Bowles and sexual abuse and healing.